Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. Just in case you haven't heard the brief introductory episode where I lay out a little bit about who I am and what I'm hoping to do with this podcast, I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy. I've worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations, and I've also had the good fortune to live outside the country for a while, which puts me, I think, in a good position to reflect for my American audience on some events of note that are happening outside the U.S. That said, a lot of the craziest stuff in the world right now appears to be happening in the United States. In just a couple of weeks since I recorded an episode, we've continued to break our own dubious records in terms of coronavirus cases, and in a scary parallel to the last episode I recorded, our drift toward authoritarianism seems to be accelerating in the form of the government suppressing statistics that make them look bad on the coronavirus, and in the form of federal troops suddenly showing up in Portland to essentially kidnap peaceful protesters off the street and toss them into the back of unmarked vans. Neither the suppression of inconvenient information nor the open abduction of political enemies off the streets are exactly hallmarks of a functioning liberal democracy. On a more potentially optimistic note about the future, though, we're fast approaching the month in which Joe Biden, the single human being standing between the world and four more years of Donald Trump, has said that he will announce the woman who, God willing, will be the next vice president of the United States. As somebody who's followed politics obsessively since the age of seven, when I found out that newspapers were good for something other than just starting a fire in the winter, and someone deeply interested in the future of the party of which I've been a dedicated member since roughly the same time, I figured I'd join every single other political commentator by throwing in my two cents on who I think Biden should pick for the VP slot. In just one of a number of ways in which I'm kind of a weird millennial, I'm actually really enthusiastic about Joe Biden being the candidate. He was among my top two through, I think, the entire primary, and I've been a huge fan of Joe since 2008 when I saw him in the debates. I remember being thrilled at 15 years old when Obama picked him to be the VP. Who Joe picks to be his running mate is of incredible importance. First of all, because this is the most important election since at least Roosevelt in 1932, both in terms of the policy challenges and the political moment that we face. Also, given the polling in the previous two elections where women were on the ticket, whoever Biden picks to be as VP is the most likely person in American history to be the first female vice president. Also, as much as I love and respect Joe Biden, nobody, including Biden, thinks that he is the future of the Democratic Party. He himself has talked about uh, being seeing himself as sort of a bridge to the next generation. That being the case, whoever he picks to be the vice president is likely to have an outsized role in shaping the future of the Democratic Party at a time when, realistically, it's the only responsible governing party in America. For all the weight on this decision, I think the VP selection in 2020 represents a historic opportunity for the Democratic Party, which I'm going to spend the bulk of this episode talking about. Now, for the last couple of decades, whether deserved or not, the Democratic Party has often trailed the Republicans substantially in terms of public trust when it comes to foreign policy and national security. This wasn't always the case. During the first half of the 20th century, it was the combined efforts of three Democratic presidents that won both world wars, while isolationist Republicans did everything possible to keep America out of it, and then, after the First World War, sabotaged efforts to build the kind of serious international structures that could have possibly prevented the second one. Later, Truman and Kennedy both took tough stands against Soviet and Chinese aggression. But America's tragic mistake in Vietnam led the entire country to go through a period that historians refer to as Vietnam Syndrome, a period of time in which the whole country was understandably gun-shy about the entire concept of foreign intervention as a result of the tragic losses from our having stumbled into a war we should never have been in in the first place in Vietnam. 
America collectively got over Vietnam syndrome, and although it had absorbed a lot of the anti-war activism of the Vietnam era, so did the Democratic Party. The Clinton administration led a military intervention that saved countless lives in the Balkans in the context of the genocide of the former Yugoslavia, maintained a pre-existing no-fly zone over parts of Iraq that saved a number of Kurdish lives from likely aggression from Saddam Hussein, struck terrorist targets in response to terrorist attacks on the embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and expanded NATO substantially. Granted, the NATO piece must have been at least a little bit less difficult in the context of Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin hanging out and getting drunk together, but hey, credit where it's due. If you don't know what I'm referring to, go on YouTube and type Bill Clinton, Boris Yeltsin, drunk. It's hilarious. But then came the Iraq War, which was stupid and terrible in a number of ways, and since then, the country, and I think in particular the Democratic Party, has been suffering from what I've been uncreatively calling Iraq War Syndrome. I think at this point it doesn't take a whole lot of courage to say in public that the Iraq War was a terrible, tragic mistake, but just in case anyone needs to hear it, for a couple of reasons, the Iraq War was a terrible, tragic mistake. From a moral standpoint, we were lied into a war that involved the loss of thousands of lives, I think trillions of dollars, and the revelations that a number of prisoners held in U.S. custody had been subjected to inexcusable abuses by U.S. personnel. Not exactly our finest hour on the world stage, and, I would argue, a little bit too high a price to pay to satisfy George Bush Jr.'s desire to play cowboy and Dick Cheney's desire to enrich the company he used to run. Invading Iraq was also unbelievably stupid from a strategic standpoint. Yes, Saddam Hussein was a genocidal monster, but by 2003 we had him pretty well contained under a mountain of sanctions and two no-fly zones. By invading, we destabilized a relatively stable area and served up half of Iraq to Iran on a silver platter, which Iran has since gleefully exploited. On top of all that, we totally blew any chance we might have had to successfully rebuild Iraq when Bush appointed a moron named Paul Bremer to run the entire thing, and he massively screwed it up in just about every way he possibly could have. Bottom line, the second Gulf War was bad. Morally and strategically, it was a disaster from top to bottom. We invaded the wrong country. I mean, if the Bush administration had really wanted to go beyond Afghanistan and taking a stand against the idea of sheltering terrorists and committing gross human rights abuses up to and including genocide, there were better candidates. Omar al-Bashir's Sudan was sitting right there doing all those bad things I just mentioned. Just saying. In addition to creating regional instability and broad global disdain for the Bush administration, I argued that the Second Gulf War also created a generation worth of hardcore anti-interventionist sentiment in the Democratic Party, at least at the activist level. Ironically, since we turned out to actually be right that the Iraq War is a bad idea, I think that that anti-interventionism, which grew so much in response to the Iraq War, has actually contributed to the mistaken idea that the Democrats are weak. Polls have often shown that a majority of Americans trust Republicans more to keep them safe than they do Democrats. I've even seen at least one poll in the last decade that showed that a majority of Democratic voters trusted the Republicans more on foreign policy and national security than they did their own party. The transformation of the Republican Party from a once great party to nothing more than a personality cult that exists to serve the whims of its mad king presents the Democrats with a unique opportunity to completely upend that dynamic. Trump likes to talk tough. It makes him feel strong. But he, in reality, is a paper tiger. Think about North Korea, for example, on which he said, quote, They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly power folks, the likes of which this world has never seen before. 
And then not too long after that, he's bragging at his rallies about the love letters that he's exchanged with Kim Jong-un, before which we are then subjected to a photo op of the two pudgy wannabe authoritarians with uniquely bad haircuts shaking hands after signing a piece of paper that meant precisely nothing. On ISIS, Trump liked to brag that he was going to, quote, bomb the shit out of them. But when America's continued intervention in Syria grew inconvenient for neighboring Turkey's dictator, I'm sorry, I mean President Erdogan, all Erdogan had to do was get on the phone, threaten Trump a little bit, and Trump pulled our troops out, abandoning our Kurdish allies to the continued near-genocidal campaign against them by Turkey. Most Americans who haven't drunk the Kool-Aid understand that Trump's a paper tiger. Unfortunately, as in the case of the two examples that I listed and way too many others, so do a number of hostile world leaders, who have figured out that although Trump may talk tough in public, if you stand up to him he folds, or better yet, if you flatter his ravenous ego in private or public, he will give you whatever you want. In more ways than one, whether or not Stormy Daniels is to be believed, it appears that President Trump embodies the opposite of the famous Teddy Roosevelt line that we should speak softly and carry a big stick. This profound weakness on foreign policy is bad for the United States and for liberal Western democracy in general. But the Republicans, who spent decades talking tough on Russia and once laughed at President Obama for bending over too far when bowing on a state visit to Japan, appear relatively unperturbed when their own new leader prostrates himself before the Tsar and wastes American taxpayer dollars on silly photo ops with the ridiculous dictator of North Korea, thus elevating the leader of that horrific, illegitimate government to equal status with the President of the United States. That being the case, now is the time for Democrats to end temporarily or maybe permanently, the notion that the Republicans are the tough party while the Democrats are wimps. Besides being a good thing for the country, and for the world, especially at a time where authoritarian countries like Russia and China are increasingly flexing their muscles, for the Democratic Party to more fully embrace America's role of aggressively promoting liberal values in the international community would probably benefit the Democrats electorally. Think about it. Who were the first Republicans to leave their party in disgust once it was taken over by Donald Trump? Were they morally upstanding evangelical Christians offended by Trump's multiple wives and then the affairs of porn stars that took place right after the wives were recovering from having given birth? No. They were Republican foreign policy experts who recognized Trump's foreign policy ideas as nothing more than a potty-mouthed version of Lindbergh-style America-first isolationism with a Twitter feed for misdirection. Honestly, the similarities between Donald Trump and Charles Lindbergh are uncanny and go way beyond their complete willingness to abandon Democratic allies in favor of cozying up to dictators. Hell, I'm sure somebody could write a book about how similar those two were, both with daddy issues and fidelity problems, Trump with the aforementioned porn stars, and Lindbergh with the weird secret multiple families in Germany, both celebrities who made an initial splash and then wore out their welcome later on with weird isolationist politics and more than a whiff of anti-Semitism. But getting back to the actual point of what we're talking about here, let's let Republicans keep the isolationist, anti-interventionist ground of abandoning our values, allies, and even our own soldiers, rather than risk Donald having to piss off his new friends Vlad, Kim, Xi, and Recep. The Democrats should stand for an activist, muscular foreign policy that promotes our liberal values and stands up for America, its interests, and its allies, rather than retreating behind a wall. This brings me to the topic of some changes in the Democratic Party that have been occurring since the 2018 midterm elections. Now, in those elections, a lot of the attention went to splashier candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are really good at getting a following on social media. 
But I think the more interesting story is the huge number of veterans, both of the military and of the intelligence and diplomatic communities, who were able to beat Republicans in tough districts and get elected to Congress as Democrats. With the Democratic caucus having been recently joined by foreign policy and security rock stars like Tom Malinowski, Max Rose, Alyssa Slotkin, Abby Spanberger, Mikey Sherrill, Connor Lamb, I could go on. The Democratic Party actually now has a pretty deep bench on foreign and security policy in Congress, expertise that will pay dividends in the long term. Now let's accelerate that trend by picking a vice presidential candidate with a strong background on foreign and security policy. As it happens, several of the fantastic women being vetted by the Biden campaign for the VP slot would specifically elevate the wing of the Democratic Party that knows and cares about foreign affairs and security to face off against a party whose foreign policy at this point realistically involves sending mean tweets at Iran and maybe Angela Merkel while contemplating the savory flavorfulness of the Russian dictator's boots. The first of the two that I'm thinking of here is Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois. For anybody who isn't especially familiar with Duckworth's bio, she has extensive legislative and executive experience. She served in Congress for a couple of years before getting elected to the Senate, and before that as Assistant Secretary of Veterans Affairs in the Obama administration after running the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs. Her mother's from Thailand, so she'd be the first woman or man of Asian heritage to be elected on a national ticket in the United States. Oh, and she's an Army Lieutenant Colonel who lost both her legs in Iraq when her helicopter was shot down by an insurgent. Senator Duckworth has put life and limb on the line for America and has given limb, multiple limbs. Republicans often like to use veterans and soldiers as political props. Let's see them try that with Tammy Duckworth on the ticket for the next couple of elections. Duckworth is maybe not quite as polished a public speaker as a Kamala Harris, for example, but she clearly knows how to fight politically, and that's a huge part of the VP candidate's role on a presidential ticket. She's certainly shown Tucker Carlson where he can shove his bow tie and faux patriotism after he recently took a quote of hers out of context to imply that she hates America, showing us that there is truly no bottom to Tucker Carlson's pure grossness. Furthermore, I would love to see Mike Pence attempt to defend Trump's Bonesburg-based deferments from a veteran double amputee in the VP debates. Bottom line, Senator Duckworth could be a great asset to the Biden ticket this November. Furthermore, with her combination of military, executive, and legislative experience, not to mention her fairly evident dedication to the country, Duckworth is absolutely ready to be president on day one and will be a fantastic VP. The next person I'm thinking of from the list of candidates that Biden is apparently considering is former UN ambassador and national security advisor Susan Rice. Although she's only in her mid-50s, Susan Rice already has more experience in the executive branch than anybody who's been picked for the VP slot since George H.W. Bush. At 29 years old, after having already finished a PhD in international relations at Oxford and served on the Dukakis presidential campaign as a foreign policy advisor, she was appointed to the National Security Council under President Clinton. A couple years later, she became the youngest African-American, actually the youngest person in general, ever to serve as an assistant secretary of state. During the Bush years, she was a fellow at Brookings and served as a surrogate on the Kerry campaign and then later the Obama campaign. When Obama won, Rice was appointed U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, where she basically spent four years brawling with the Russian and Chinese U.N. ambassadors, although she apparently built a really interesting, kind of funny friendship with the Russian ambassador in particular. Overall, she was a really effective U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She was critically able to actually get the Security Council to do things sometimes, including addressing the humanitarian crisis in Libya and getting sanctions placed on Iran and North Korea. During Obama's second term, she was appointed to serve as U.S. National Security Advisor. 
Although I'd be happy to have anybody Biden is considering serve as the next vice president, I got to admit, Rice is my favorite. She's tough, brilliant, and experienced, and also often legitimately funny in public, which anyone who knows me knows is the easiest way to win me over. In addition to those personal qualities, Rice is a solid liberal interventionist who clearly believes in the importance of America taking an active role in the world to stand up for liberal values and human rights. During the course of her career, she's managed to piss off both neocon types like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, and also a number of the isolationists that live on the far left. If, as I desperately hope, Susan Rice is in fact the VP pick, though, we have to be prepared for a whole lot of hyperventilation coming out of Sean Hannity and all their friends over at Trump TV about the 2012 Benghazi attacks. I'd like to take a second to say why I think that's ridiculous. If you're not super familiar with the Benghazi story, a couple months before the 2012 election, there was an attack on a U.S. facility in Benghazi, Libya, in which four Americans, including the U.S. ambassador to Libya, tragically were killed. Now, the initial assessment by the CIA at the time was that this had grown out of demonstrations happening in parts of the Muslim world over a video that some random guy in the U.S. had released, which a number of Muslims found very offensive. As the U.N. ambassador at the time, the attack on the facility didn't in any way fall under Rice's purview, but she drew the short straw as being the person who was free to go on TV to basically relay to the American people what the CIA had initially assessed. Unfortunately, that initial assessment turned out later to be wrong. The attack on the facility was not some spontaneous demonstration that got out of hand. It was a coordinated assault by an Islamic extremist group. Again, all Rice did was go on the Sunday shows a couple of days after the attack and repeat what the CIA's assessment of the situation was at the time. But in the context of the election, Republicans saw an opportunity to attack the Obama administration for not taking Islamic extremism seriously enough, and they jumped all over what Rice had initially said on TV since it turned out later to be incorrect. After Obama won re-election anyway, the Republicans tried to dredge all of this up again to block Susan Rice from being nominated to succeed Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. There's a lot of speculation that their real motivation was to make sure that John Kerry was nominated for state instead, thus freeing up his Senate seat in Massachusetts for another attempted run by their buddy Scott Brown to win a Senate seat in a special election. The Republicans, of course, would later try to bring up Benghazi again and again to attack Hillary Clinton once it became clear that she would probably be the Democrats' nominee in 2016. For the record, Benghazi wasn't Hillary's fault either. And we know that the Republicans privately at least probably understand that too, since Kevin McCarthy came out and all but admitted that they'd only done these investigations to hurt her in the polls. It is ridiculous bordering on lunacy that I need to even mention the Benghazi attacks in the context of a potential Rice VP candidacy in a world where, as you listen to this podcast right now, the Russians are paying a terrorist organization to whack American soldiers in Afghanistan, and the current Republican president apparently just doesn't mind. But if hypocrisy were cold, the Republicans could power most of the Western Hemisphere. So I have no doubt that if Susan Rice is the VP pick, Republicans will certainly try to Benghazi her in the way that they did to Hillary. That said, Biden could nominate the ghost of Phyllis Schlafly, and the Republicans would probably still call her a foreign socialist radical who wants to ban hamburgers, forbid truck nuts, destroy America, and impose Sharia, or something. The prospect of this silly potential attack on Rice is absolutely no reason to not nominate her to be vice president. Susan Rice is tried and tested and absolutely ready to be president on day one. She knows the horror of walking past stacks of bodies in the wake of the genocide in Rwanda. She knows what it's like to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Russians and the Chinese and the UN Security Council. She is someone who fundamentally understands and appreciates the critical role that America plays in maintaining global stability. Picking her to be the vice president 
would fundamentally cement the reality that the Democrats, not the Republicans, are the party that gets foreign policy and are the best positioned to protect America and its role in the world going forward. Now, for the record, despite my obvious preference for Susan Rice and Tammy Duckworth, I think all of the women that we know Biden to be considering would be fantastic vice presidents. But even if Biden didn't pick Elizabeth Warren, Val Demings, or any of the other great women we know to be on the shortlist, he could realistically open a phone book to a random page, pick the first female-sounding name, and still have someone better than Mike Pence, a jar of extremely pious mayonnaise who somehow came to life in order to pursue a career in right-wing talk radio and then stumble into Congress on a platform of defending cigarettes, public health expertise that I'm sure is helping him a lot in his current role as chair of the Coronavirus Task Force. But the Oval Office, and I think by extension the Vice Presidency, is not a great place for someone who doesn't care that much about foreign policy. From Bernie Sanders in 2016 suggesting that Saudi Arabia and Iran, countries that are actually sworn enemies, form an alliance to fight ISIS, to Gary Johnson, the 2016 Libertarian candidate, asking, what is Aleppo? in the midst of the massive humanitarian crisis in that city in Syria, to Sarah Palin in 2008 apparently not knowing why it is that North and South Korea are two separate countries, a number of candidates have shown that foreign policy isn't really something you can just pick up suddenly with a few note cards because you've decided to run for president and now you have to care about it. Joe Biden has a ton of foreign policy experience. That's great. But this pick for his vice president is about a whole lot more than just the next four years. It's about the future of the party. The single most important and powerful part of the presidency is foreign policy. Let's show that our party gets that by picking someone for whom national security is an area of expertise, not just an afterthought to be waved away with a reference to a sibling in the military. Okay, yes, that was a swipe at Elizabeth Warren. I'm sure she would be a great vice president, just isn't my first choice. Trump, backed up by his servile army of Fox News sycophants, basement-dwelling internet trolls, and backbench congressmen, likes to tar Democrats as globalists, as if we live on some kind of globe. Let's own it. Let's make the case that the Iraq War was a moral and strategic disaster undertaken for the wrong reasons by a bad president from the other party, and that America shouldn't retreat from the world generally, or shrink from our critical responsibility of at times being the muscle behind aggressive multilateral efforts to uphold global stability and protect liberal values and human rights. As Democrats, let's make it clear that we support an American foreign policy it looks a bit more like the Bartlett administration from the West Wing and a bit less like the Lindbergh administration from A Plot Against America. And let's demonstrate that commitment to foreign policy with our VP pick. Biden Duckworth. Biden Rice. Now those are some bumper stickers that I, for one, can't wait to put on my car. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the podcast so far, or even if you don't really like it but feel disposed to doing me a favor, please hit subscribe, leave a review, or share it. It really is helpful. As always, I'd like to thank my friend Nate Wright for his technical advice and for designing the podcast artwork. I hope you're staying as healthy and sane as possible these days, and to my friends and family in Portland, that you're not at this very moment being shoved into an unmarked van by unidentified federal troops. Yeesh. On that typically uplifting note, until the next episode, thanks for listening.